Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is December 16th, 2022. Welcome to a special edition of Canadian Common Sense, an interview special. So the website is aarongun.ca, that is A-A-R-O-N-G-U-N-N, Aaron Gunn. The show, Politics Explained on YouTube. Just put Politics Explained into your YouTube search. He is also on Facebook at Aaron Gunn and on Twitter at Aaron Gunn. But most importantly, he is here with us today on Canadian Common Sense. Aaron, nice to meet you today. Nice to meet you and thank you for having me. Well, glad to have you. So uh, this is the first time we've got to talk to you. The first time you crossed my radar was when you were running for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in depth in, later in the show. But uh, just for the sake of our audience and even for myself, just uh, maybe tell us a little bit about you. Uh, well, I live uh, in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, grew up there, still live there, but do travel uh, quite a bit. Uh, first job at university was with a group called the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, which actually kind of got a start in, in Saskatchewan, which I know where uh, you're uh, you're talking to me from uh, today. And uh, after some time there, moved on to a group called Canada Proud, which is the largest Facebook page uh, network across the country, and built a following there, making these kind of short, snappy videos um, uh, that kind of exploded across the internet on on anything that was in the news, almost like a newspaper op-ed, but on uh, on camera. And then took that and felt that there were certain issues that we just weren't going into depth enough. We weren't connecting the dots, weren't pulling the curtain back. And there was just no investigative journalism in this country, especially on the issues that I thought mattered most. So hence the uh, Politics Explained was born, which was a, is a documentary series uh, that you referenced. And that takes up uh, a lot of my time uh, today. Okay, fantastic. So, um, yeah, and that's something we'll probably wrap the show on talking a bit more about politics explained. And uh, it's, uh, well, that was the whole reason we booked you because Vancouver is dying is the particular episode we want to want to discuss. And uh, for our listeners who have yet to see that show, you got to, as soon as we're done this episode, go to YouTube and check that out because it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. But for right now, because we're both political animals, let's uh, let's talk a little politics. Right in your backyard in BC, I'm actually very excited to report that uh, one of the MLAs, I believe it's uh, Todd Stone, had proposed a, a motion or maybe it was a bill to freeze MLAs pay raises for next year, 2023. And I'm stunned that it actually passed unanimously in the House. So I, uh, I want to applaud BC's leadership and I hope that it spreads across the country. Yeah, it was good to see that they uh, they uh, obviously the public is is hurting a lot right now with these record high inflations or the highest inflation in 40 years. And uh, it's uh, some politicians uh, uh, see a political advantage for themselves to make bills like this. And it's nice when occasionally occasionally that political advantage lines up with the best interests of taxpayers, which obviously is the case here. So, yeah, it's good to see. Well, that's a good point that uh, it is definitely to their political advantage to do so, although you're still a couple of years away from another provincial election in BC, aren't you? Uh, technically, yes, but we have a new premier here, David Eby, and, um, you know, there's lots of rumors that he might actually pull the plug and call an early election in the spring or the fall. So we'll see if that ends up happening or not. But uh, the rumor mill uh, is always swirling out here uh, on the left coast. Okay. Oh, well, well that, that's excellent. I guess that'd be... Uh... 
good time for the political junkies like us. I always love elections. Now, you just went through civic elections in BC, well, not very long ago, a month or two ago, I believe it was. And uh, Lewis, our co-host, is uh, based in the Okanagan. And he was pointing out how Penticton, Kelowna, and a lot of communities across all of BC really took out the trash as far as municipal elections are concerned and got rid of a lot of the incumbents and have brought in a new, uh, not only new councils and mayors, but from a completely different side of the political spectrum. I was wondering if you could uh, give us a little details on that from your neck of the woods. Obviously, there's lots of different cities. Uh, the, I would say that the biggest trend line was incumbents did not do well. So I think people are frustrated here in British Columbia. They're frustrated with the rising cost of living. They're frustrated with the increases in crime and violent crime in particular, and just the general deterioration of the downtown cores of obviously Vancouver, but many of our smaller cities as well. Uh, you know, whether it's cities like Victoria or Nanaimo uh, on the island or some of the suburbs of Vancouver, or even in the interior in uh, cities like Penticton. So uh, lots of people were frustrated and uh, a lot of incumbent mayors and councils that had pursued policies that led to this uh, state of affairs uh, were shown, uh, were kicked to the curb as it were. Okay, now in your own city, Victoria, did Mayor Helps survive or? He didn't run again. So um, okay. that's a win for everybody, but um, <laughs> it, it wasn't, uh, the incumbent mayor would have not been the one that I would have, uh, uh, or sorry, the, the new mayor would not be the one that I would have supported. But it was good to see uh, Ben Izzet, who uh, last municipal election got the highest vote share um, and has since uh, voted to tear down the statue of uh, Johnny McDonald to um, try to defund Christmas celebrations and then Remembrance Day. He was defeated pretty, uh, pretty badly. So that was uh, that was a good thing. Well, I'm happy to hear that too. I remember we actually had commented on that particular story with the Johnny McDonald statue on our show at the time that it happened. And I remember saying, well, Mayor Helps is no help at that time. So, um, well, I'm actually glad to hear A, that she did not run again and B, that this gentleman was, as you say, was kicked to the curb. So let's talk Vancouver a bit. Now, there was uh, almost a sea change as far as mayor and council was, went there. Um, so Kennedy is out and it's uh, Ken Sim is, is, is in now. Is that the, the gentleman's name? Yeah, Ken Sim is in. Um, it uh, he ended up getting trounced by about twenty percent. So we got uh, we got a new mayor in. I believe it's the first time an incumbent mayor lost seeking re-election for the first time in in something like forty years or thirty years. So it was a pretty astounding victory and a resounding victory uh, at that. Okay, now Ken Sim. Now in BC municipal elections do have parties or at least associations of some kind, which is something that's completely foreign here in Saskatchewan and in Alberta where I grew up. So um, are, are these parties aligned with any of the provincial or federal parties or are these really just, just kind of loose associations? Not officially, they're definitely, they're looser affiliations. Um, they, they obviously as politics does, tends to bring together lots of people that are also aligned at the provincial and federal level. Uh, sometimes it's, I find the municipal politics, it, it breaks down a little bit into, you know, pro, pro business or anti business or pro development or anti development and, and those kinds of lines. And, uh, usually you have slates going against each other. I do hear talking to people in Alberta that, uh, that's now being considered for the future, both in Edmonton and Calgary. So we'll see if that, uh, develops. Cause as you said, there's not so much of a history of, of that in, uh, in Alberta. Okay, now, um, Mr. Sims, I can't remember the name of his his coalition, but I'm going to guess they are definitely on more of the right side of the spectrum. 
Yeah, I mean, you might maybe not from a Saskatchewan perspective, but uh, <laughs> from a BC perspective, I think I think they would like to to consider themselves centrist, um, centrist, center right. Put it this way, they're definitely a lot more right than the the uh, mayor that was there before, who was on the uh, former NDP uh, MP, and uh, definitely on the left, to far left of the political spectrum. Okay, and how was voter turnout? I mean, civic elections usually aren't uh, very good, but I think there was obviously change in the air. So was voter turnout any higher than normal? Uh, no, um, some people thought it would. It was um, obviously it was a resounding uh, victory, but I don't think voter turnout was that different, at least in Vancouver. I think it was around 36% or something, something along those lines. So um, yeah, not a, not a huge change in, uh, in voter turnout. Um, obviously it's very dependent on what the race is like. Some municipalities, you have mayors that are acclaimed, obviously, and then others, you have really big fights. Surrey was another example of a really big fight. They're fighting over the status of the RCMP there and the Surrey police force. Um, and that also saw an incumbent uh, mayor thrown out. So um, I believe turnout heart was, was higher there, but yeah, it's kind of a municipality to municipality uh, situation. Okay, well, and honestly, 36% is, actually pretty good for municipal elections we look at there was a by-election in mississauga lakeshore federally just last week or earlier this week i should say where the turnout was 26 percent, which is embarrassing and shame on you mississauga that's uh that's horrible you know even if it is you know quote only a by-election i'm uh I'm actually disgusted by the apathy of Canadians when it comes to, well, especially in municipal politics. That's a government that is most accountable to you, yet it's the one we seem to care about the least. It's, uh, it's shameful. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's, it is. It's, uh, I mean, I, I do understand that people are obviously busy with, with their lives and, and uh, working jobs and raising children and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we live in a democracy, so the country is uh, only as uh, strong and as engaged as its citizenry. So uh, it's kind of everyone's democratic uh, duty to, to step up to the plate and stay informed and do their jobs. Absolutely. Now, um, speaking of strengthening our democracy, you have made a run for the leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party uh, last year, which is now, is it, is it officially called B.C. United now, by the way? Uh, I don't think it's officially called that, but they're uh, notionally going through the motions of changing that name. I don't know okay. when it's going to be official, but yeah. Okay, so now I know you had uh, put your hat, your hat in the ring to run for leadership of the party, and then the party itself said, no thanks, to which, well, we on the, on the show here were actually on your side. We were pretty ticked off that they decided to disqualify you. And uh, I believe you had some support from other candidates too to keep you in the race, but I was wondering if you'd be willing to go into a bit of detail about that, because uh, that seems a little anti-democratic to punt someone who's looking to lead a party. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a, it's a bit of a staple of the Canadian uh, uh, political scene, Canadian political system. Uh, other systems, democratic systems are not like this, of the United States being uh, the most obvious example, where you have a handful of unelected uh, gatekeepers that effectively control these political parties, that can effectively control, they do control who can or cannot run, not only for the leadership, but also as MLA or MP for them. In the United States, obviously, this is not how it works. You simply seek the nom you seek the nomination in the in the respective prime. But here, it's uh, candidates are 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 chosen or at least allowed to run by a small group of unelected people who who um, have a set of interests, obviously, that they're working to uh, to protect. 
So that's um, that's what I come, came up against in the in the um, in that leadership race that you referenced. And the BC Liberals are probably there's probably no worse example in the country of a of an elite led uh, uh, insiders and uh, primarily lawyers that that uh, live in Vancouver. Um, and if you're not part of their country club, then you're kind of not uh, not allowed inside the tent. So uh, that's what we found out. Um, but it was still, I think, a worthwhile endeavor to to expose that that's how the party was actually run. Um, you know, despite all their rhetoric about being a big tent and welcoming different people. Yeah, well, and uh, I think you were probably vindicated when we saw that Kevin Falcon was elected leader because he seems to, at least from what Lewis was say, saying, he he's kind of one of the old guard, as it were. And he was, because uh, he, he's been a stalwart for quite some time, hasn't he? Yeah, he was, he was, uh, he goes back, uh, I mean, more than 15 years. I can't remember when he was first elected as an MLA, but he, he's been, uh, he's been around for a while, to say the least. Okay, well, Fair enough. Well, I'm sorry that didn't work out for you, but uh, seems that you've done quite well for yourself all the same, uh, in, in spite of all that. So, yeah, one door one door closes, so another door opens. So you just keep, yeah. uh, keep pushing forward. No, oh, for sure. Yeah. So uh, I want to turn to the federal scene for a minute here. Now, uh, I broke on the show a couple of weeks ago that the Liberal Party of Canada had issued an edict to their incumbent MPs that they all needed to make a certain number of constituent contacts, raise a certain amount of money, and do a certain amount of knock on a certain number of doors, I should say, by March 1st. So my first thought was, oh, we're looking for a spring election. Um, I wonder, if, A, have you heard of this? And B, would you go along with the spring election idea? Um, I definitely, this is federal you're talking about? That's right. Uh, yeah, I I, uh, I would be shocked if there, there was a federal election. I think it's, I think it's very unlikely. Um, I mean, political parties, especially in a minority government situation, well, first of all, you never know. But uh, secondly, uh, you know, they like to keep their MPs uh, on their toes and, and get people to, to keep working and raise money and stuff like that for the party apparatus. So um, I just think it's, uh, you know, politics for all its complexity is actually pretty simple. The, the Liberals will call an election or the NDP will force an election, which are the two ways that it could happen when it's in their perceived it to be in their best interest to do so. So um, if you're reading the polls and, and the tea leaves and the economic indicators, uh, it would be quite the the risky uh, proposition for either of those two parties to uh, to force an election right now. Well, I mean, especially the NDP's case, A, they're broke and B, Jagmeet Singh is, well, he's just proven himself to be a comedian more than anything else. And that, that showed in the House of Commons when he said, when I'm prime minister and people laughed him out of the building, essentially. So, yeah, so. yeah, it would, uh, it's not this, it's not the stand up routine I'd probably pay to see, but uh, he's, uh, <laughs> wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be getting my vote either, I suppose. Well, no, nor would he get mine. But yeah, I think that he's, uh, well, he, he does tend to delude himself at times, but uh all right, so let's talk a little bit about Vancouver is dying. Says, um, Lewis actually had put me on to the, to the show, and I've watched it about five times now. And really, five when, times. Uh, yeah, I mean, because I, every time I watch it, I actually see a little something else that reminds me of my own city, my own situation here. And so that's actually the first question I want to ask. When uh, you say, when you title it Vancouver is dying, I look at it and think this could easily be called. Toronto is dying, Thunder Bay is dying, Saskatoon is dying. I mean, there's uh, these problems exist all over Canada, but I think that Vancouver is kind of the canary in the coal mine. So I was just wondering if, uh, if you had any thoughts on that 
Uh, definitely, it's not a problem limited to Vancouver. Vancouver is, is, I would say, the ground zero. It's where the problem is worse. It's where some of the same failed policies have originated and have since irradiated out from to other cities, uh, especially in BC. But uh, I've seen it. I've seen it in Edmonton. I've seen it in Calgary, and I know it exists uh, in other cities across the prairies and out east uh, as well. So it's um, it's certainly not limited to to Vancouver, but that's uh, I mean that's you know it's like the the oily rag when you're trying to find out where uh, a fire started and working your way backwards. Yeah, well, and and now I, I think it's a BC wide st statistic where we uh, there's six overdose deaths a day. Is that BC wide or is that just Vancouver? That that would be BC wide. Yeah. Okay. I mean. Uh, Obviously, as anybody on the left will tell you, one is too many, and that's their justification for a draconian program most of the time. But it's uh, it's really sad to see that it's exploded that way. Now, I remember this is a personal story. A few years ago, when I was in Vancouver visiting my brother-in-law who lives downtown, and we were walking out to a restaurant and approaching us, we're walking toward us with this guy flailing his arms about just uh, just randomly in the air because he was on whatever it was. And he just about smacked my brother-in-law on the head and he just kind of ducked and moved out of the way and just kind of carried on to where we were going for supper. And of course, me being from the prairies, growing up in a small town, I was just like, what the actual hell is that? And he was like, oh, no, don't worry about it. And uh, I thought that's not the kind of behavior that should be normalized, yet they just seem to blow it off like, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, no, there's there's uh, there's areas of Vancouver that are that are quite literally like the the land of the Walking Dead. It's it's um, it's sad, really, and um, it's it's terrible to see firsthand what what the policies uh, that we've implemented have resulted in. And also, you know, in a country as uh, rich and wealthy as Canada, it's it's really um, you know not something that uh, I think should be happening. And it's also one of the situations where I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but. You know the government has managed to find this this uh, this this concoction of policies that has led to a you know a lose 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 situation. Um, first of all, it is obviously for that individual that you saw uh, downtown flailing their arms, not in control of their their body or their life. Um, their current situation is not advantageous to themselves. They are not um, they are not being the living the best version of themselves or having a good time. Obviously. Uh, it's not good for uh, the communities and everyone else who has to live through this um, clearly uh, and, and the consequences of it, the people that are that are victimized by crime as a result, for example. And it's also not good for uh, taxpayers who end up footing the bill, uh, whether it's for policing, whether it's in the justice system, whether it's the paramedics who are pretty much, you know, there's an ambulance or two down there, you know, 24 seven of, of just resuscitating people. Um, all of this, the social service benefit costs. I mean, billions of dollars. I can't remember. There's an incredible statistic of how much money um, that they're spent tens of millions of dollars every day in taxpayer money being spent in the downtown east side of, of Vancouver, just with all the support services and, and various payments that, that go out. And uh, so everybody's losing with the current predicament. Nobody's winning. There's no one coming out on top, except for who I call the, the, um, the PIC, the poverty industrial complex, which is the group of these so-called nonprofits that aren't really nonprofits. I mean, they've their their directors are getting paid high into the six six figures who set them up, who basically make money off of the the poverty situation that we have here in Vancouver. And and uh, of course, not surprisingly, they're usually the same ones advocating for a continuation or 
or expanding of, of the current set of policies. Yeah, well, let's talk a bit about the, the current set of policies. I was absolutely appalled when, uh, well, thankfully, the ex-Mayor Kennedy Stewart had said uh, they were going to set up vending machines in downtown Vancouver to dispense free drugs to people. And I thought, usually you want to try to cut demand or and stop the demand for the drugs. And here they're they're handing them out freely and think they're think that they're actually doing people a favor by feeding their habits. I don't I, I don't I don't get it. Uh, was there any rationale behind that at all? Well I mean what they all say is is um I I mean they think that it's it's um it's actually kind of depressing. They kind of think that many of these people are going to be here forever. This is their their lot in their life and they and they basically want to treat it as a palliative issue, um, which is really sad and and also incorrect. Which I noticed uh, when I was producing Vancouver's Dying because we interviewed uh, a whole bunch of individuals who were recovering addicts, former residents of the downtown east side that were addicted to to uh, drugs like crack or fentanyl, and lived down there for four, five, six years, and who were able to recover, get sober, get clean return to the workforce and actually start building families. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's actually amazing the human body that, you know, the state that it can be in and how it, it can actually recover um, and uh, be pulled from this. And to, to not make that uh, available to individuals and instead just push free drugs upon them in perpetuity is, is not a recipe for, for success. Um, or a healthy society. It's just a recipe for more death, more despair, and uh, more uh, endless drug use and all the problems that uh, that stem from that. Well, and I love that they've talked about it in a, in a lens of harm reduction. And I think, okay, they're abusing their bodies and you're really helping them to continue to abuse their bodies. So I don't really get the, how it's a harm reduction scenario at all. I mean, that's to me, that's just a fancy buzzword. Yeah, it's like it's like safe supply is an oxymoron, right? There's no, there's nothing safe about handing out this this drug that's essentially almost heroin in pill form, where if you take too much of it, you overdose and die. I mean, that's there's nothing safe about that. As as a recovering addict told me, you know, you're giving heavy duty opioid painkillers to people that aren't in pain. Oh, that, that's a, that's a good way to put it, and it's a. Uh... I find it kind of sad, like uh, my brother-in-law is a, a firefighter in Edmonton, and then I have a family member here in Saskatoon who's a paramedic. Both of them have an ample supply of Narcan to uh, get them through a night, beak, and they and they need to use it. Like my uh, my brother-in-law, the firefighter, he says they uh, they go through it, they use the Narcan, and some junkies actually get mad at them for reviving them because the Narcan revives them and they're, they're not high anymore. Now, uh, that by itself is ridiculous, but I, uh, I want to dovetail on another ridiculous statistic or not statistics so much but you'd interviewed a lady who had been living on the streets i think she said since the 90s uh, in vancouver is dying and i believe it was her that had, had mentioned to you that a lot of this housing that the government buys and supplies these people don't want because they have to enroll in treatment programs if they want that housing and then i saw her just this morning reading an article that the bc government is about to provide 90 more units in downtown that is thought Okay, if they'd watched your documentary, perhaps they had realized that they're doing nobody any favors by by bringing this housing in. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that one. Yeah, so it's it's one of the myths out there that there isn't housing. There's tons of uh, housing available, and um, through both the government and, and private groups who are who are subsidized by the government, 
And um, the thing is, is, is obviously these, you know, getting a taxpayer funded place to stay a roof over your head comes with some basic preconditions. Um, whether it's about visitors or, or op usually open drug use and, and uh, um, uh, or crystal meth and bringing in drugs, dealing drugs, all these different things. And, um, you know, a lot of these people would actually prefer to be on, on the street and especially in these tent cities that cropped up in, in British Columbia where the climate's a little bit more milder than, than Saskatoon. And um, because there, there's, you know, there's no rules and we had all these big tent cities pop up here. It was like Lord of the Flies, complete lawless chaos zones. And um, yeah, they, they, and that, now what they, what the, the activists want, like the homeless activists who are actually different than the homeless people themselves, you know, they want housing without preconditions. And I mean, that is just a complete recipe for disaster. We've seen a couple instances of it. They just turn into giant drug dens uh, for organized crime uh, bases itself out of. And we actually interviewed an individual, uh, Cody Hall, who was put into one of these buildings uh, called SRO, single resident occupancy buildings. And um, he had uh, he had hit rock bottom and he was having issues. So he went to a mental health facility. He was on the street for four or five years, went to a mental health facility, uh, detoxed for, I believe it was 60 days or something like that, uh, got clean. And then uh, where did the government send him? They sent him to one of these SROs, which is a, is a hotel that the government used taxpayers' money to purchase and just warehouse addicts into it. So they shoved this person who just finished getting clean, such a difficult thing to do, wants to turn his life around, get into treatment. Do they send him to a treatment facility? No, they, the government throws him into one of these hotels surrounded by people who are using and dealing hard drugs. He said within 15 minutes, I think two people knocked on his door and offered him drugs. And he said no both times, but uh, by two, three hours later, and uh, however many more knocks on the door, he was back to, to using drugs and addicted again. And that's the kind of situation that our government has created, which again is a lose, like who, there's no one benefiting from that uh, scenario. Obviously, the individual, the addict isn't benefiting, uh, the taxpayer is not benefiting, uh, nobody's benefiting. So um, this should be totally uh, the exact opposite of the policies we should be pursuing. Okay, so those, these SROs you're talking about, is that, um, you know, again, part of this harm reduction strategy? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, I guess so. It's about, there's a, the theory of you just got to get a roof over somebody's head and then everything else uh, will be better. So, you know, here's the solution to all the homeless people. The government will go because of, you know, Airbnb and other things, buy up all of these hotels that have been kind of these uh, dungy hotels. And, um, we're just going to take all the addicts from the street and warehouse them in these buildings. And it just turns into a complete disaster. First of all, nobody's getting clean in that environment. Uh, you're surrounded in a toxic environment, it perpetuates drug use. Um, and of course, by the nature of some of these people, plus the fact that they're high all the time, and they're living these crazy lives. You know, there's most of these hotels by this point have actually caught fire on various occasions because people are doing God knows what inside. And it's just, it's an unsafe, chaotic environment. And it's also really bad, uh, you know, to some of these people on the streets, you have these hardened criminals, really bad people. And then you have some good people who are, you know, tough times or, or you know, they, they got caught up in the drug scene or whatever. Well, now they're all looped into the, ex grouped in the same place and they're taken advantage of, especially women and some pretty, pretty uh, sad and, and terrible things happen. And we heard the stories. Yeah. Well, speaking of the stories, you had interviewed a, a group of, of ladies 
four or five of them who had, you know, had gotten clean and were telling their stories. And so let's talk about a bit what happens outside these hotels. Like even that one gentleman you had uh, interviewed who was, was in one of these hotels, the, the gentleman who'd gotten clean. And uh, they said they all turned to crime. I mean, you'd even spoken with a lady from, I believe it was Safe Streets, Vancouver, I think it was. And uh, even she said, yeah, I mean, your cars are getting broke into and it's uh, crime is on the rise because now they're they're stealing whatever they can to pawn it off to buy more drugs. Now, has there been a big increase in those petty crimes as well with the increase of, of drug use, et cetera? Yeah, there's been a big increase in, in crime and also in, in these random violent attacks. Every day in Vancouver, there's four random violent stranger attacks where somebody who's, who's you know not involved in organized crime or anything like that is, is randomly viciously assaulted. Uh, and we interviewed a mother of one of those victims as well in Vancouver is dying. But yeah, the the um, just the rant. I mean, it was it was one of the the kind of biggest aha moments when we were filming this documentary was I was wondering how much of a connection there is between this drug use issue that we see in the downtown east side and the increases in crime. And we would ask we multiple of the recovering addicts um, who had just recently been living down there and, and addicted to drugs, if there was a connection. And they just laughed and they spelled it out so, so straightforwardly that it was after you heard it, you were like, well, of course, I don't know how I didn't see this before. And they just said, look, we I developed I was addicted to X, you know, crack or fentanyl or whatever it was. And my addiction was costing me uh, $200 a day. So I had to steal $200 worth of uh, worth of goods uh, a day or, or uh, you know, $1,400 uh, a week. And uh, that's that's just how it was. And you'd go in and be shoplifting. And, you know, after you go to one place, you take jump on the sky train, go to a different place on you know, a different part of the city. So it's not like this crime was was limited to the downtown east side. And, you know, that's just another cost that's being borne by society, by the economy from this failed policy. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Now, um, I felt absolutely awful there is this one girl you'd interviewed and uh she was a young girl she had i think one tooth left in her mouth and she actually seemed like she had her faculties about her like i thought okay the went the least with the the, the snippet you had on the show i'm sure you talked with her longer than just what what we saw recorded but she actually sounded like if she could have got someone to get through to her that maybe she still could have made something of herself because she seemed to be you know, moderately intelligent, but as you'd put it, she was, uh, I think how you said she was definitely in denial at the least and uh, at the worst delusional. Uh, she was the one that was talking about how if you want a new car, that's an addiction. And if you want X, Y, and Z, that's all an addiction and trying to, this moral relevance of a drug addiction versus just wanting to become a part of society. Um, what was that, that conversation like with her? Because she really seemed like she had some pretty wild ideas. Yeah, that, that was the first interview we did when we were oh. on the downtown east side. So that was an interesting way to start it out. And and she was, um, yeah, the moral relativism of, of um, she was comparing like wanting to buy a, a nice car or have a cup of coffee in the morning with uh, doing crack cocaine, essentially. And um, yeah, but I mean, obviously an intelligent young woman who, you know, could get clean, could get off the street and turn life around and, and be a productive member uh, of society a taxpaying member of society, possibly a mother. And um, instead, you could see her literally wasting away uh, on camera in complete denial. And another thing that came up a lot, both during the video and then in some of the discussions afterwards we had with 
the um, recovering addict is sometimes, you know, there's this um, kind of belief that's been perpetuated, I think, to create a sense of victimhood of, you know, what's the biggest driver of this issue and people getting addicted to drugs? Is it like childhood trauma or, you know, what? And, uh, you know, the addicts that we talked to over and over again said, you know, it's just you have an addictive personality and they they you get addicted to the high. And the number one thing preventing people from getting clean is denial, denial that, you know, you don't actually have a problem. And one of the the terrible one of the terrible things about this so-called safe supply and just handing out drugs in perpetuity is you're also perpetuating that sense of denial. You're saying, you know, there's not a problem here. You can just keep doing these drugs like there's there's an endless supply. They'll just keep on coming and we'll give you this and we'll give you that. And all of a sudden it seems like, oh, actually, I don't have a problem. This is this is a total, totally manageable uh uh, solution and I can continue to to live like this. Obviously, at everyone's uh, expense and in a in a way that's toxic, obviously to yourself and everybody around you. So, it um, yeah, it was it was a it was an eye opening experience before to to hear that from multiple addicts saying denial, uh, and then usually something happens and they snap out of that denial, realize they have a problem, um. And then seek uh, seek treatment and seek recovery. And uh, most of them, honestly, once if they've made that decision to seek recovery and seek treatment, uh, can be successful. That's excellent. And actually, that's what I want to wrap this up with. Is uh, and and thank you, by the way, for making that connection with you know how these people just kind of normalize getting these handouts of drugs and whatnot, which just perpetuates the problem more than anything. Um, you had put in the documentary and. Thank God you did, because that was really the best, the most shining light is there are a couple of treatment centers and there are some really good success stories you had. The one gentleman, I can't remember the organization he was with, but he was the biker looking kind of guy. And, uh, you know, he actually seemed like quite positive that, yeah, you know, you can turn this around. And uh, and they had turned it around for some people. So I was wondering if you could at least share some of those uh, those good news stories he had in there. Yeah, it was, it was super powerful. We toured, it was called the Last Door Recovery Center. I'm doing a, a, another call with them soon. And uh, the stories there was, um, first of all, I think everyone who works there is basically a former addict, recovering addict. They're set up there. It almost feels like a frat house, obviously, without the, the alcohol. <laughs> and um, it, the level of encouragement and, and mutual support and just the stories um, they were very critical. The the chief medical officer here in British Columbia had a had a kind of a notorious statement where they said, you know, that if you're addicted to alcohol or whatever, you know, we have treatment facilities for you. Uh, but if you get addicted to something like, you know, opioids and fentanyl, like, you know, for some people, it's just, uh, uh, you know, treatment just isn't a isn't a viable option. And and then here I was right in front of me, all these people who were living examples uh, that that was basically a load of BS that uh, and they were quite mad and angry about it because um, it, you know, uh, was kind of an invalidation of their entire life experience and the, and the journey that they climbed to get out of uh, addiction and, and all the, the terrible things that come along with it. And um, they just had such powerful, uplifting stories. And uh, their goal is, is um, to get those powerful, uplifting stories in front of as many people as possible. Um, because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing that, um, you know, instead of making treatment and recovery facilities available front and center to them, we're just, we're just giving them free drugs and trying to medicate the problem away uh, as if it's, as if, uh, as I said earlier, some kind of palliative issue 
where the best we can do is ease their suffering or something like that. Well, and you're, you're right. And I mean, I think that we both agree that's certainly not the answer to the problem. So uh, just uh, as we're wrapping it up here, how, uh, how do we solve this problem? I mean, uh, is this something that's always going to be with us or can we win this fight? Can we reduce demand and therefore get rid of supply? Yeah, well, I think first and first and foremost, you have to emphasize. Uh, uh, I mean, we're doing what we're doing right now, so we need to make it harder to get uh, drugs. Obviously, in the first place, we shouldn't prevent uh, forget about prevention. But we got to get uh, recovery and treatment up to everybody, and we got to get as many people as possible into recovery and treatment off the streets and off of these drugs, which are obviously such debilitating uh, substances and corrosive substances, both to the individuals and, and society uh, more broadly. So I think I think that's critical. And we also have to, um, this, this how damaging this campaign has been to uh, normalize or even enable drug use, um, I think has been very, very culturally uh, uh, devastating. So I think we need to find, uh, we need to stop, stop doing these kinds of things uh, whether it's like handing out free drugs, for example, things that just perpetuate the problem instead of solving the problem. And we got to get people into, into, into treatment. And I do think there's a proposal, you know, BC is starting to talk about it. Even Alberta is definitely pushing it forward where we got to have difficult conversations with ourselves about, uh, you know, we have mental health facilities and we used to have a lot more in the, in the sixties and the seventies, um, where there comes a certain point where if you can't look after yourself, um, I think the families and and the government have a responsibility to you know to step in and and uh, look after you essentially, and I think that's going to have to start happening as well. You mentioned the person flailing his arms. I mean, you can watch you walk downtown Vancouver, the downtown east side, and it becomes quite evident that this solution that we're currently pursuing isn't working for, for anyone. It's not working for them. It's obviously not working for their friends, family. It's not working for local communities. And it's certainly not working for taxpayers. No, definitely not. And Canada, when you do watch Vancouver is dying, and I encourage you all to uh, go to YouTube, search that up and watch it. I think that you're all going to see reflections of your own community in a lot of what, what Aaron and his crew have are put on display for you in that show. So the show is Politics Explained. Uh, if you punch that into your YouTube search, it should come right up. You can also search directly for Vancouver is Dying. Uh, again, we'll also come up. Uh, AaronGunn.ca, that's A-A-R-O-N-G-U-N-N.ca. Follow Aaron Gunn on Twitter, at Aaron Gunn, and follow him on Facebook, at Aaron Gunn as well. Um, Aaron, Merry Christmas to you. Uh, Happy New Year to you and your family been great meeting you today. Merry Christmas to you as well. All right, thank you, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Okay, bye-bye now.